Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kylan, friends. Uh, we're going to be talking to the lovely and wonderful Katie Halper today. Very interested to get her thoughts on what's going on in the country right now, the total implosion of Joe Biden, the absolute destruction of the Democrats, and everything in between. Yeah. Um, Katie is always an interesting—she's uh, always very unvarnished, and I think very unfiltered, I guess is the word I would say. Like, what yeah. she's actually thinking, it's what comes out— how she's thinking, how she's feeling. So I definitely am interested to hear what she's, what's on her mind these days. I'm not a fan of the filtered or the varnished, so. Mm, um, I hate varnish. Yeah, it's the varnished. worst. So got a bunch of uh, interesting things that I want to talk about. Um, the QAnon shaman. Yes. This is a guy, the guy who wore the funky hat and had like body paint on and face paint on and was wearing like animal skins or whatever. He mm -hmm. sort of became a figurehead of the January 6th. Yes, he was uh, in, like, riot. every photo of the January 6th And thing. he was one of the people who was inside the Capitol. So uh, this guy was sentenced. Yes. And go ahead and tell everybody what went down. And we might have a disagreement on this. We'll see. Okay. So uh, Mr. Jacob Chansley, mm -hmm. he pled guilty to disrupting an official proceeding. And he was sentenced to 41 months in prison. That's three and a half so years. Three and a half years. Um, that comes on top of the 10 months that he's already served in solitary confinement because of coronavirus, which is very onerous punishment to start with. Um, and what the government says, they say on January 6th, he was among the first 30 rioters to enter the Capitol, quickly used a bullhorn to, quote, according to the governor, go government, rile up the crowd and demand that lawmakers be brought out. Within an hour, he'd made it to the Senate floor, taking the seat that Vice President Mike Pence had only just evacuated and leaving a note on the dais saying, it's only a matter of time. Justice is coming. So he nobody says he did anything violent that day, totally nonviolent, but seen as sort of a figurehead or, you know, very visible part of this day. And they're, they got him on this felony count because he was in the Senate chamber where that official counting of the votes was supposed to have occurred. A couple other things that I think are relevant to the conversation about his sentence here. Um, number one, he has a history of mental illness. And I think if you watch some of his, you know, what he has to say today, it won't surprise you to learn that he has a history of mental illness. He seems to have some delusional beliefs and understandings of the things that are going on around him. He received a diagnosis from the Navy when he served some sort of mental illness that actually he wasn't informed about and wasn't able to get treated. So I think that's relevant um, and also says a lot about our mental health system, et cetera. Another thing that I think is relevant is the fact that um, he has no prior convictions. So he's also not someone who's been in and out of trouble and caused other issues at other places. This is basically the one thing he did. So nonviolent, first offense, history of mental illness, and he's going to serve more than four years in prison. Okay. For this offense. So very clearly by how you just, you know, explain the story, you're against. I think it's outrageous. Okay. I think oh, it's wait. insane. Hold on. Yeah. So let's. Start from scratch here. Let's say, forget the 10 months in solitary confinement, forget the three and a half years that he was just sentenced to. Yeah. Given the facts of what we know, what would have been a fair sentence for him? I personally don't think that he belongs in prison. He doesn't belong in prison at all. I don't think so. Now, okay. look, could someone make a case to me? Maybe he should serve six months or maybe just what his lawyers wanted is just to count the time served, the 10 months time served and basically call it a day. I, I could buy that. But, again, this is someone— Well, that's why I asked you from scratch, because— This is not a man who's a danger to society. But that's why I asked you, assuming from scratch, 
what would you have given him? If you're the 10, you, 10 months in solitary confinement is, is 10 already. months in prison. So you're seemingly you're okay with 10 months in prison then? No. No. You I wouldn't mean, have even done that starting from scratch. It look, would have been no time. I don't think, I don't think that it makes sense for this man to be in prison. Okay. And, and what I would say is, so there's, there are other layers to this as well. So a lot of people who are on the right, who are deeply concerned about the treatment of people who were there on January 6th, they try to make it like, oh, they're having the book thrown at them and the George Floyd rioters, oh, they were let off the hook. That's bullshit. If this I was mean, a Black Lives Matter protester, he would have gotten 20 it, years right. for this shit. Yeah, that's no exactly right. It. And so I think I think that's ridiculous. The other thing that, um, just in terms of having more facts around this, he's part of why this is getting a lot of attention is he's only the fourth felon to be sentenced. So most of what we've gotten so far in terms of these cases are you know misdemeanors, the lower level offenses. Mm-hmm. There was another person who was uh, sentenced, got exactly the same sentence as he did, 41 months, and he assaulted a police officer, which okay. to me is much more egregious than you know LARPing in the Senate chamber. And that person got less time than him? They got the same. Oh, the same time. 40, okay. 41 months, and I assume that they were also About, held yeah, in prison About, yeah, 10 months for solitary. Time. Okay. Yeah. So so here's my breakdown of the situation. Now, up front, I'll say I've been thinking about this a lot, and overall, I don't know what I think is a fair uh, uh, sentence, but I do think I'm, I'm tougher on it than you, and I'll explain why. Um, so the 10 months in solitary confinement, I after after that, so I'm not starting from scratch, but if I were yeah. to start from scratch, I don't know what I would make the sentence, but yeah. the 10 months in solitary confinement, uh, that's 10 months in prison. Do I think good enough, gone? Yes, I do. I think that's good enough, okay? But I do take issue with uh, the way that it's being framed, particularly as I saw on Twitter and even as you described it there. I'm not as convinced as you are that it's not violent, and I'll explain why. If somebody is breaking into a store or if somebody's breaking into your house, as we know that happened on January 6th. Mm-hmm. I mean, they had batten down the hatches as soon as it got crazy, and you had all the police lined up. There are obviously endless videos of people breaking windows to get into the Capitol, yeah. all sorts of violent stuff happening. And then people went in. So if somebody's breaking into a store like that and then people go in, I don't know if that's not violent. You shouldn't be in that fucking store. And people say, oh, but the, but the Capitol is like our public house. Yeah, but so is the White House, and you can't just barge in and, and sit next to Joe Biden, you know, on any random Tuesday. Yeah. That's not how it fucking works. So here's what I would say to that, though, because um, I, first of all, let me say, I'm not a person who's like, January 6th, no big deal. What are these people still crying about? I mean, I do think that the media, like, obsesses over this to the exclusion of other things that are also really important. But I think this was a horrible day for the country. I think that the people that were there should be ashamed of themselves. Like, I think all of those things, right? That's number one. I want to put that on the table. But you can only judge people by the actions that they themselves took. But I am based on that action. I am. So, but but so you're saying he was, you know, you wouldn't consider it non, not violent. No, I'm saying I'm not convinced not com- it's nonviolent. He did not commit violence. Well, so if somebody breaks into my house and somebody's going in there and uh, causing harm, breaking stuff, doing whatever, whether or not I'm there is irrelevant, and then three people follow that person in and start cheering. I mean, you said he said he riled up the rioters and demanded the lawmakers be brought out. So somebody breaks That's, into my house, they the, follow them is, in. This is the government's language. Okay. This is the government's language. Okay. But if somebody breaks into my house and then three people follow them in and everybody's causing havoc and they're just wandering around my house, am I going to look at those three people and say, you're good? 
No, but I think ten months in prison or right. four well, years I didn't, in prison. I, I didn't disagree is with not that. Being like you're good. I didn't disagree with that. The thing yeah. I'm taking issue with is the. You it's, think he should serve some time? I, I'm not even convinced of that. What, but what I am saying is, I think it's playing very loose to say it's not violent mm. because even like it, let's take for example, let's say for argument's sake that the thing the government said there's true. I don't know if it's true, but let's say it's true. The riled up the rioters and demanded the lawmakers be brought out. How is that not akin to a direct threat of violence? Well, there are legal standards for that. I mean, you ha- it has to be very specific, and it has to be credible. So for, yeah, I mean, we see this all the time on Twitter, right? And in fact, the other thing that they talk about that here- That doesn't sound specific to you? Is No, because you have to talk about a specific person. There has to be like a, a way, an expectation that this you're actually going to be able to actuate that. And so we see this all the time on Twitter where people make sort of like vague political statements that are kind of menacing, but they're not technically legally direct threats. So, no, I don't think and and they don't even allege that that is a direct threat. What they got him on was this disruption of an official proceeding, which, by the way, let me give you a little bit of the judge's rationale. Maybe this helps back up your case. He says effectively that he thought Mr. Chansley was genuinely remorseful. He found that he had, you know, really reflected on his actions, that he was regretful of what he did, all that stuff over the 10 months when he was in solitary confinement. But the judge said he couldn't see, because of the gravity of the day, um, finding an excuse for bringing the sentence lower than what the sentencing guidelines are. The sentencing guidelines for disrupting an official proceeding are anywhere from four years to 20 years. Yeah, I mean, the- so he gave him the low end of the sentence for this particular crime, but it seems to me insane that this particular crime would land you in prison for 20 years. I don't even think that should be a crime. Obstruction of an official proceeding? That doesn't sound like a crime to me. Like, maybe there's something else you could get I mean, him with, but obstruction of... Outside of that, probably what you could get him with is, like, trespassing. Yeah, and I don't, but I, I don't know, maybe legally speaking, the whole thing of, oh, it's the public's building prevents it from being considered trespassing. I don't know. I, other people, I think, were, um, I think some others were charged with trespassing. Trespassing, okay. Yeah. I still have a few more things to say about this, okay. because, so I think the reason why, even though he's not getting the book thrown at him technically, it still feels like he's getting the book thrown at him. I think the reason why is because he's a figurehead of what happened on January 6th. Yeah, so he's it's being almost made an example of. Because he was dressed in such a gregarious way, they're like, okay, well, you're going to be the fall guy we now. we got to make an example yeah. of you. Yeah, so I think that has a lot to do with it. I'll also say, though, on the mental health thing, um, it's when it's this premeditated, I'm not as comfortable being like, yeah, just mental health. Like, I feel like mental health, there has to be almost a moment of like, you know, it, things unravel and you're out of your mind in the moment. Whereas this is like, I mean, to what, when he's, you're telling me when he woke up in the morning and he's very carefully putting on his face paint and coloring within the lines, like he's not aware of what he's doing. Like, you know what you're doing. Mm. It just seems like it's, it's so convenient that only, yeah. only when you're caught afterwards, you're like, my mental health is my mental health is my mental health. It's like, well, maybe nah, there would have been more evidence of it. With, I don't agree with you there because I think it's relevant to his punishment. The fact that he truly believed the insane 
conspiracy theories and like really bought it. He really thought he was like saving democracy and a patriot in that moment because he was so incredibly disconnected from reality and had a mental health diagnosis that would lead him to potentially be so disconnected from reality. Can, is every QAnon or mentally valid. ill? Because that's no. what that opens the door to. No, it doesn't because he has a diagnosis and not every QAnon or does. So I, but I by definitely using the same think, standards, wouldn't they have it? No. Why? Because they haven't don't have a diagnosis. I but mean, I'm saying if so, if all the Q and went think, to a therapist, wouldn't they be the therapists be like, "You're fucking crazy. You have a mental health issue." Well, maybe I mean, if that's the case, like if it is literally only crazy people involved with QAnon, then yeah, I think that should be relevant in all of their. But I, I guess what I'm trying to do is sort of make a distinction between ideological brainwashing and mental illness. Mm -hmm. And I feel like ideological brainwashing, you have a higher degree of culpability if you're ideologically brainwashed versus, right okay Agreed. that's the only point Agreed. i'm trying to make there and i but i think there's overlap here because people who are mentally ill may who are mentally unwell may be more vulnerable to that type of ideological brainwashing and i think that that should be taken to into a consideration i mean obviously if he's actually mentally ill then yes that should be taken into consideration i think the thing i'm stuck on is i don't know if it's actual mental illness or if you're just ideologically brainwashed and it looks like mental illness and now it's convenient to trot it out is my point. But look, my overall breakdown, I'll break it down one more time for everybody. Given the facts as they actually exist, after spending 10 months in solitary, that's plenty. Let him go. That's what I say. Yeah. If we were starting from scratch, I don't know what I would do, but I don't think I would object to like maybe six months in prison or something like that. And the reason I feel like that is because, and again, it all goes back to the comparison I'm making to like a random business on the street or in my house or whatever. Obviously, that's a public building, but in that moment of crisis, when they batten down the hatches to protect the people inside, and they have good reason to want to protect people inside, when you have people breaking in there, breaking the windows, storming in, I mean, they barely got Pence and Romney out of there. That was, you know, very, there's videos of that. that the, They almost it caught Pence and Romney. God knows what would have happened if they caught Pence and Romney. God knows what would happen if AOC or one of them if they caught them. So, yes. like... I, the fact that it was super violent, everybody knows as they went in there, you're not supposed to fucking be going in there, and you fucking know that. Don't play, don't, I'm not, I'm not an idiot. Like, don't treat right. me like an idiot. Mm -hmm. So he goes right in there, fucking face paint and all that shit. By the way, when he gets into, I think he was in the Senate, not the House, he was in the Senate. Right. And there were a bunch of people, like, five or six people start taking pictures of official senators' notes and opening up their shit and going through their shit. I think the QAnon shaman goes to the head of the Senate thing and starts preaching into the thing he was at the dais for some time i believe yes and so i i mean maybe this this weakens my position i don't know but i don't disagree with the government when they say he probably riled up the riders and demanded the lawmakers be brought out and when i see that so what i see is what is almost a direct threat of violence what i see is clear trespassing in a situation where you know that there's some negative shit going down in there i don't think it's as simple as saying it's non-violent i think that's way like there's got to be so, it's so not like something's either violent or nonviolent. There's got to be a middle, a gray area there too. Because think mm -hmm. about murder. If somebody, if I go, if I go commit a murder, and you're in the passenger seat, and mm -hmm. I'm driving the car, I park, get out, go inside, rob a bank, commit a murder, come out, get in the car, and I say, go, drive. You may not have even known I was going to commit the murder, but under our law, you're guilty of murder for that shit. Right, but you're not really, you're just objecting to how it's being talked about. You're not really objecting to the idea that the sentence was way too long. You just don't no, like how it's being talked about. No, I think the Senate, the sentence of three and a half years is way too is long. Is way too long. Yes. 
But if you told me, and you if think, you said he didn't spend any time in I mean, prison, but we're giving him 10 months or six months, I'd be like, okay. You basically agree with what his lawyer wanted, which is he should just be released for time served. For time served, yes. But what I'm also saying is if it started from scratch and he totally got off with nothing, I don't think I'd be happy with you that. You wouldn't be good with No, that. I would want at least a fine I mean, or at least some time in, in jail or prison. Oh, yeah, a fine or something. There should be some punishment, don't get me wrong. It's not like I'm like, he was in the right and it was nonviolent and they were just like, there's this narrative on the right wing of like, oh, they were just tourists. Who really cared? Yeah, that's, I don't, like, shut the fuck I up. Do, I don't buy into that. And like I said, um, the other thing that's really prominent is this narrative of, oh, well, the Black Lives Matter protests, they got, they got off and they didn't, weren't charged and they were given all these special Those deals. Mother, they would have been that's, gunned down in the, with the same set of facts at the Capitol outside. Yeah, so I, I have no doubt about that. I actually, so 70 defendants who've been sentenced so far have gotten an average of about 27 months behind bars for rioting during that protest movement. So it's just not accurate to pretend like, oh, they're just being all let off the hook whatsoever. So that is all bunk. But I always think it's really important to apply the same principles. No, I agree. No matter the political, you know, ideology. It's, it's sort of irrelevant, you know, it's it's irrelevant in a sense, like what political position they're espousing when those acts are ultimately committed. It's 100% irrelevant. That's yeah. right. And so you can only judge people based on the facts of what they actually did. First of all, I think this charge of, you know, disrupting an official proceeding, again, it's insane that that would carry a maximum of 20 or a minimum of four years in prison. I mean, that's insane to start with. But then the fact that this this guy who is not a danger to society. Yeah, what about who, like disorderly conduct or something like that? I'd be more comfortable with that with than that obstructing, obstructing an, an official, official proceeding. proceeding. It's like, you just made that up. That's not a crime. Well, and, and the other thing that you pointed to, which I also think is really objectionable, is making an example of him. Because yeah. he was like, he shouldn't be getting extra years in prison because he wore a ridiculous outfit and people took a lot of pictures of him, right? And that's what this feels like. They wanted to make an example of him because he was so visible. And that's not justice. That's not the way the law works. You shouldn't be punished because you wore something that was more absurd than what other people were wearing on that bad day. Yeah, I guess uh, I'm just annoyed by, I guess, everybody in the conversation. Like, one of the, the response from people to, to my left who want him to be, you know, like, 3.5 is great. It's fine. I like it. Uh, oftentimes, what the main thing they'll fall back on is just, like, here's somebody who got, whatever, five years in prison for voting or something you know like they'll come up with some weird example yeah, but it's, and it's like, like well that's not good either that's not good either right? but also but also to your point i don't think yes i made the comparison a couple times with black lives matter as to what i think would have happened if they were in that position but ultimately what i'm trying my best to do here is evaluate what happened on its own merits mm -hmm. and to determine what i think is the right thing on its own merits and i guess the reason why i'm struggling with it to some extent is because i don't think i think that i used to think yeah there's either violent or nonviolent crimes there's clearly a gray area there too where it's like, it's not really violent, but it's almost violent. It's like facilitating the violence. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, I guess the the best way for us to try to get our own priors out of the view, out of view, is if we imagine, like, how would we feel about if the QAnon shaman stormed the DNC after they robbed Bernie in 2016? No, no, no. I got it. I got it. <laughs> if it's a militant labor organizing group that did yeah. the same thing that happened on January 6th. Yeah. And one of them was dressed like a fucking weird pirate Indian something. And and you even have to, I mean, you even have to layer on top of that, like, 
this felt existential to this group of people. I mean, that was insane. And and obviously this individual. Which group of people? For the people that stormed the Capitol. Like this dude really believed that democracy but, was at stake. No, I know, but that's. It also felt existential to the country watching from the outside thinking, mm-hmm. are we having a coup? Is this a coup? Yeah. No, I know. I know. Yeah. But I'm saying to try to make the comparison apt, like part of why this was so emotionally potent for this group was they, they really genuinely believed that the, the country, the fate of the country was at stake. And that's a bigger problem. That would take forever to unpack that problem because obviously these are people who've turned to complete charlatans, con men, and frauds in order yes. to get their answers. Yes. And the other pieces those charlatans, conmen, and frauds are, they will not face any sort of accountability. See, now on that one, I go even further in the softy direction, probably compared to you, because I feel like I hate it when people do the whole, like, because somebody might interpret the thing you said in this way or that way, therefore you're responsible. It's like, no, no I even think Trump, Trump was speaking out of both sides of his mouth on yeah. the January 6th thing, and I get really annoyed when people are like, he should be prosecuted for that. It's like, he obviously covered his tracks enough, because even though he came out and said, you're very special people, I understand why you're doing this, he was like, go home. He said, go home. Yes. So I, I don't, uh, I think on that front... I don't think that there's a prosecutable crime. There's not. For Donald Trump. I think the only, like, real solution is to not elect that man or anyone else like him ever again. Obviously, yeah, obviously. (laughs) Like, that's the only sort of justice you can get to because, as you, I mean, I agree with you. There's not a prosecutable crime, but it does feel wrong that these people were lied to by people that they trusted. And I'm not letting them off the hook. They should face some sort of punishment. They did bad things on the de- that day. The ones it who committed terrifying. crimes should it face some punishment. Extraordinarily dangerous situation. Well, that's the other thing too. By the way, the argument against because what, of course, did the security state try to do in the wake of January six? Give us more power. Give us more money. Right. Let's do another Patriot Act. Let's take away civil yeah. liberties. And my response to that, Crystal, was always. You don't need to do any of that shit. All you have to do is prosecute the people who actually committed crimes on January 6th. You have all the tools that, and they had all the tools they needed to prevent it in the first place. But that's also why maybe I'm slightly uh, more hardline on this than you are. You know what I mean? In which direction? Well, in the sense that I think that the the, the QAnon shaman, if he had gotten six months from scratch, if he had gotten six months or something like that, I'd be like, that, I, I wouldn't it. complain if he got six months. Yeah, because I, I and again, complain. I guess my biggest bone to pick is I don't like the flippant description of it's just not it's nonviolent. I wouldn't just call that nonviolent. I don't think that's a, a fair summation of his actions on that day. I would still submit he did not injure anyone. He didn't beat up it. He did. I mean, he didn't commit a violent act. Well, neither does so the person who's sitting in the, the car, the getaway get car, the, yeah, when the other person commits murder. They didn't do any They didn't do any violence, right? That's not violent. That person commit murder, hopped in my car, I drove away with him in my passenger that's seat. That's very, not violent. Yeah, but that's a very direct connection. That's a very direct cre- connection. You're seeing people break into the Capitol in front of you, breaking windows and shit, calling for Mike, hang Mike Pence, and breaking, you're following in but, all jolly and whatnot. Breaking windows is also not violent. Pro- I mean, Property violence counts as violence. I'll, uh, admittedly, a, a lower level of violence, yeah, but it definitely counts as violence. violence. But no, I mean, I think based on his actions, going in, being in the Senate, leaving some weird note, posting some things on social media, yeah, I would consider that nonviolent. I don't know that, I don't think that leads us to a very different place in terms of what we think that an appropriate punishment would ultimately well, be. Well, we you think nothing, and I think it may, I would be fine with six months or a big fine or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't think nothing. I think that there should be some punishment. A fine, I, like I said, I wouldn't complain about six months, 
But certainly the the four plus years he's going to serve. Oh, but that's is completely that, of insane. Of course, that's crazy. Yes, and that is simply because they wanted to make a, an and, example of him and, and say he's the figurehead. To your point about how I hate everyone in this conversation. I mean, there are a million liberals who think that's like not enough. You know, and that's, <laughs> and that's they're refusing to engage with like the actual specifics of what happened. Yeah, yeah that's just like we Trump's bad and he's bad because Trump something throw the book at him, right? Execute him. Well, yeah. and it's it's a glaring hypocrisy because these are the same people who would be in support of criminal justice reform and who would be against these True. mandatory minimum sentences and all of that sort of stuff. But, but I, I will say, and this is not a point of you. I, I've seen Glenn Greenwald make this point a lot on Twitter, like, oh, the hypocrisy of the lefties who generally support criminal justice reform, but then they're tough on crime in this yeah. sense or that sense. And the only the only response I make, I do think that that is overused because I'm somebody who's in favor of criminal justice reform, but I also view myself as tough on crimes that I think should actually be crimes. Mm. You know, I want to punish murderers. I want to punish rapists. I want them to be behind bars. And there's no there's it's not hypocrisy to see a specific case and say, I think you're guilty. You should be in prison. While at the same time, I say free every single nonviolent drug offender in the country. And so I think it's a little bit on both sides of this. It gets a little flippant. No, but there's no doubt that, like, there are plenty of people on the left who have just abandoned any commitment to, like, you know, all the conversation about the carceral state needing to reduce incarceration, nonviolent offenses and all that stuff has flown out the window when it comes to people who were in the Capitol on January 6th. And as I already said, on the right, it's the polar opposite uh, level of hypocrisy where of course. they want the book thrown at anyone who is, and these people they want to let off the hook. I mean, they are the ones who are kind of law and order and they were ready to send in the troops over yeah. um, the the protests and the riots that were associated with those protests. But with these True. people, suddenly their they're, hearts are soft and they you know yeah. think that it's I too heavy-handed. I guess I've gotten to the point now where I find hypocrisy dialogue tiresome and stale and annoying. Because I just don't care. I don't care who's a hypocrite and who's not a hypocrite. Let's talk about what actually happened in this case and what we think is justice in this case. Mm, I think it's important to point out when people, because you're just pointing out that you claim to have this principle and you're not applying it evenly. And I do think that that matters for exposing just how sort of like, partisan and tribal people become rather than applying you that's true but like mission accomplished we know that everybody's a tribal idiot particularly any prominent voice in the conversation i got it but now let's talk about what should actually (laughs) you got it does everybody got it though i'm not sure about that everybody watching us gets it but anyway uh, let's move on to the next story because uh this is actually very positive news so we learned that the 10,000 striking john deere workers voted to approve a third contract so the vote was 61 to 39 and they were it was a five week strike. It's just coming to an end now. And they got major concessions from the company. So they're going to immediately um, raise pay, uh, immediate pay raise to to 10 percent before the previous contract was five. They doubled that to 10. Uh, by the way, previously, John Deere said, this is our last offer. Don't come back to us. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the strikers were like, we're going to keep striking. And then John Deere was like, okay, we're going to come back to the table. <laughs> yep. They just immediately flipped on it. So now the, the pay raise is doubled as 10%. Um, there's going to be two future 5% raises, cost of living adjustments, an $8,500 bonus, pensions restored for new hires. And in retirement, it's going to be up to $250 a month extra plus $2,000 bonus per year of service. So these are, um, it, it, you know, it's an improved pension, uh, bigger pay raise, bigger bonus. Um and importantly, also, uh, John Deere has put into place one of these two-tier wage and benefit systems so that people have been with the company longer get a better deal than new hires coming in. 
They were not, I think, able to kill that two-tier system altogether. But John Deere had been threatening a third tier added on top of that um, so that people who were just coming in would get even worse pay, even worse benefits and all of that. And they were able to kill that new third tier in this contract, which is extremely significant. And I will say that the union... In their own words, they said, we didn't expect to get rid of that tier in this round of strikes. Mm. So it, for them, I think it's more of a long-term goal. Uh, that's like, you know, the the holy grail to them is getting rid of that two-tier system. But short of that, because I did a segment on with the second proposal. Yeah. And I was like, it's pretty good. Well, and and it, it was only narrowly, see, very I, narrowly defeated. I predicted that they the, the they would stop the strike and they would vote for it. And I was wrong. But like you said, it was like 51-49 or something, so I was barely wrong, but I was wrong. Right. Well, and here's another aspect of this. First of all, the fact that they're in a union means they can strike and means they can win better pay and benefits. And that simple point is so important (laughs) to emphasize over and over again. What an amazing case study for why people should be in a union. What an amazing example of why it matters to have that collective power. Because if you're individual John Deere worker without your brothers and sisters in the union able to go on strike and force and make these demands and force the company back to t- the table, you're not going to get anything. I mean, forget about it. They'll show you the door. Well, so that's, you have, that's the you big... have very little power. So. That's number one. The num- the other thing that's really important about this and really interesting in the labor movement writ large is um, the very first contract that John Deere brought to uh, the members, the union leadership actually backed that contract and said, we think this is a good contract. We recommend that you all vote for it. And the workers voted that one down. It was overwhelming. It wasn't even close. And so for the workers to go against their leadership that way and take matters into their own hands, you know, rank and file and say, hell no, absolutely not. That was quite quite dramatic. And the fact that they did it a second time with a contract that had significant, you know, concessions to them from the first one was even more extraordinary and stunning. And this fits within a picture of. UAW leadership has, um, I mean, they're, they face a massive corruption scandal. There's a movement underway right now to further democratize that union so that the leadership is directly elected instead of by this delegate system that, you know, basically means that the same people stay in charge over and over again. And there's business sense that at the national level, not the local level, but at the national level, the leadership has lost touch with the membership. So this is also a dramatic show of strength for the rank-and-file membership vis-a-vis the leadership of the UAW. Yeah, they absolutely have to get to the, you know, direct voting place because any union that doesn't have that is questionable, you know? Because if you if you have some sort of delegate system, DNC-like system, yeah. where they could just override, it's mm-hmm. like, that's not good. Well, and, and there's a parallel story playing out right now with the Teamsters um, who have... Their actual, you know, are are going through an election process right now to elect new national leadership. The old leadership had backed a contract with UPS, which is their biggest um, corporation that they're involved with organizing their workplaces, that the rank-and-file members were opposed to. And so now there's sort of a comeuppance because the leadership had bucked what the members actually want. And so they're, they're electing... New leadership, it looks very likely like that new leadership is ultimately going to win. So, you know, within the union movement, 
there are better and worse and more democratic ways to do things. And what you're seeing right now with UAW, with Teamsters, and with some of the other unions across the country is a show of that rank-and-file strength. On the other hand, we've been tracking the uh, IATSE strike, uh, and they had, you know, that was averted. The, they were given a contract. Membership just voted on that contract. Membership actually voted it down in a close vote, but the leadership liked it, and they don't have that democratic system. Yeah. And so they said, go back to work. We're taking the contract. So just very blatant examples here. Yeah. Two relatively close votes going in very different Yeah, directions. it's bullshit. It's like when the Working Families Party, the, the actual members, just wanted to endorse Bernie again in 2020. And then the leadership overrode them and endorsed uh, Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, that's what that reminds me of. It's totally bullshit. You yes. can't you can't set up oh power to the workers and then you set up a system where you take away power from the workers and give it to a handful of people who are supposed to represent them. Because then what ends up happening oftentimes is the people who are supposed to represent the workers get in bed with management. Right. How many times have we seen that? It's just it's just such a scam. But anyway, just to get before we bring in Katie, just to get back to one point you made a little bit earlier, the big libertarian lie and capitalist lie is that. You know, oh, you, as an individual, you just negotiate with your employer. They have all the clout. <laughs> they have all the power. You are super expendable, and you're not bringing anything to the table that, you know, you, you have no leverage over them. They have all the leverage in the world over you. It's not a negotiation. It's not. And so the only way that you can get some decent terms is if you stand in solidarity with your fellow uh, workers and, you know, actually band together. Because then if the entire company's like, we're going to, you know, make you give us a decent wage, then they're a lot more likely to give you a decent wage. Yes, very true. And so as we're seeing this labor upheaval, part of it, workers who, I mean, a lot of these John Deere workers, they like their job. They've been there for years. Yeah. Some of them are second generation. I mean, this is like an important part of their identity and they genuinely like being there. And so the fact that they were able to stay in their job and get a better deal that's a wonderful thing. Across the country, you see, you know, workers who at fast food restaurants who are just walking out. They're they're sort of standing in their own solidarity and all locking the door and walking out. You're seeing people filing for union elections, following the Starbucks election up there. So you're seeing workers take matters into their own hands. But if you're part of a union, you're able to bargain in this way, you're much more likely to ultimately end up with the deal that you want. And I think this is an incredible sort of demonstration of that very obvious principle that has somehow been lost in America to the nation. So Indeed. love to see that. Shall we bring in Katie? Yes, we shall. Um, Katie Halber, she is the host of the Katie Halber Show. She is the co-host of the Useful Idiots podcast. She is a great friend of mine and of ours as well. Here's Katie. Katie, welcome. Great to see you. Thanks for having me. How has your life been these days, these sort of post-pandemic but not really post-pandemic days? Yeah, it's been interesting. Uh, kind of back to normal-ish, but I don't know what that actually looks like. I don't I don't even know how to answer that question, honestly. It's, <laughs> it's a weird world out there. Um, I'm sure you've been following one of the things that, you know, we've been taking a lot of uh, time to track here and on our various shows is the demise of Biden's complete agenda and where the Build Back Better bill is at this point. Um, but I haven't actually heard your take on sort of how we got here and what you make of the remains of the Build Back Better agenda. So why don't we start there? So I just want to admit that I feel like my post-Bernie like political uh, analysis is I kind of given up. I mean, this is not the most inspiring thing to hear, probably, but I've kind of given up on electoral politics. Um, 
Uh, I think that the only thing I see real value in is just kind of bashing the Democrats from the left as much as possible. Um, and I don't even know how much hope we have there uh, from there. And the climate stuff is really depressing. Um, I don't understand if people just don't care about their grandkids. Uh, I don't get how people are acting like it's not an emergency. And I I think a lot of I think I agree with a lot of your takes. I mean, uh, Kyle, I think your hard line around uh, student debt is a good one. But I just feel like I'm I don't know, maybe you guys are going to want to like cancel this interview with me. I just feel <laughs> like I don't have that many good that many insights into it, except for that. As usual, the I think probably one of the most harmful things in the world besides the media um, and I say that not from a Trumpian perspective, obviously, but newsflash, uh, there are leftists who are critical of the media, just in case people are confused about that. And you can Google Noam Chomsky. But um, I've heard of that guy. Yeah, you may have heard I of haven't. him. I haven't. I don't know who that work. is. <laughs> well, I mean, some blue check libs, like they just freak out as if, if you say anything critical of the media, you're being Trumpian. And it's always I'm always curious. I don't actually know if that is out of ignorance or if they're being disingenuous. But um, there's a lot of education to do there. We should start some re-education camps for them. But um, <laughs> I think that the another major obstacle to progress is the kind of myth of technocracy, which is that things just aren't doable. And we know that's not true. Things There's, there's often a will out there that's not reflected by uh, political elites. So it seems like there isn't the political will. And... Uh, it's not that they can't do it. It's that they choose not to do it. So um, there's a lot there. This is a great yeah. great starting point. Because I want to sort of uh, flesh out your position a little bit because it's, it's very common on the left, and I think anybody on the left on their bad days is exactly where you just described you are right now. I, I, and it's, the, you know, this notion of, like, doomerism, like... I kind of given up, you know, we threw everything we had at it in 2016 with Bernie and 2020 with Bernie. We came up short. Now everything's sort of um, falling apart. My first rebuttal to that is actually a very simple one, which is that's exactly what they want. That's exactly what the sure. establishment wants you to do, you know. And so to almost as a matter of principle, I feel like obligated to just not do what they want me to do. You know what I mean? Maybe yeah. that's just my contrarian streak that comes out in that so. instance, but that's that's my my gut reaction first and foremost. But the second part of that is there are little uh, bits of hope. So, for example, what we're seeing right now with the strike wave in the country. Right. Um, and actually, you know, as we're talking now, the John Deere strike just succeeded. Like, they actually, they went on strike. How many, 10,000 of them, was it, Crystal? You know yeah. this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 10,000, and they... Like, doubled their pay raise. They, it was a number of phenomenal things that they got. And they actually showed that if, if you really band together and you have solidarity and you don't give up, you can win. And it, John Deere even proposed a contract that I looked at and I thought, this is a pretty good contract. And they voted it down again. And John Deere's like, we're walking away from the table. And then when they held the line, uh, John Deere was like, oh, okay, I guess we'll come back to the table one more time. And then they actually were able to work out a deal. So the like new interest in labor politics in unions is definitely a piece of uh, hope that's out there for people on the left. But beyond that, and this is a talk you and I had recently, um, 
I would say that Kyle had to give me the same pep talk recently. Katie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. I would say that, that context. If if we if we ever in our lifetimes happen to get somebody who's on the left, intelligent, strategic, and aggressive as president. I actually think people underestimate how powerful the president of the United States is because the president of the United States is the commander in chief. So right off the bat, it's like they control all foreign policy. So a president who's actually on the left yeah. and believes in these things could just be like, I'm just going to pull out of the wars and fuck off right. if you disagree. But beyond that, like you said about the student loan debt relief stuff, the president can do so much through executive order. And this is something that's not really talked about enough on the left. Like you can eliminate all student debt through executive order. You can free every single nonviolent federal drug offender. You can uh, effectively legalize marijuana by changing it from a Schedule One drug to a Schedule Five drug. You can pardon Stephen Donzinger, Julian Assange. You can let Edward Snowden come home. So right. I guess the, uh, Daniel Hale. Daniel Hale, exactly. That's another one. Fantastic. So yeah, I guess um, I would say even if people are just tangentially involved in politics and on the left. Fuck, like, you know, look at presidential politics. We got to try to start recruiting, like, the next Bernie, except a right. Bernie with a killer instinct. And beyond right. that, just literally get involved in direct instinct. action. Like, literally an instinct to kill. Yeah, no, that would be wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, I mean, I think that what, what I was saying, I just was being honest about how um, kind of I feel like a bit lost in the desert. Um, but I, I do think that, what I was saying isn't incompatible with with the idea that the presidency is extremely uh, an extremely powerful office. I think that it's true. When I say I'm given up, I've given up on electoralism or electoral politics. I don't really mean that I think it's no more it's no longer important or relevant. I think it is. I think they're not going to save us. I think we need to be creating a world where um, it's two things. It's like we 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 do organizing. Um, I mean, I'm not a labor organizer, but I guess to the extent that we have different roles, that we get the word out. If you're in the media, you get the word out about labor organizing. You get the word out about how kind of full of it the Democrats are. Uh, you can do those two things at the same time. And I think that the rise in labor militancy is encouraging. It's an example of something that comes out of not out of the world of electoral politics, but also at the same time, to be honest, I mean, obviously, there are certain presidents who make it easier to organize and make it harder to organize. And Biden, while he's not nearly doing enough, is not as much of an obstacle as Donald Trump. Yes. Having this was one of the reasons why I was persuaded to vote for Joe Biden was because just simply the switch at the National Labor Relations Board. Yeah. And we see it in um the Starbucks organizing effort that's happening right now in Buffalo, they've had several NLRB decisions go in their favor. So Starbucks, right. one of their tactics was, no, we don't accept that the, you know, the unit for the election is just these three stores. We want to make it all the stores in Buffalo, which of course makes it so much harder for organizers. Then you got to go out to all these stores where you haven't been having conversation, meet all these workers, all that stuff. Makes it so much harder when you open up the pool like that. NLRB said no. If a majority of workers at any one of these stores votes in favor of the union, they're going to be unionized. Right. Um, so things like that have, and also Starbucks was trying to push back the timetable. NLRB said, no, we're doing this now. The The voting is ongoing. So even just that switch makes a difference, which does kind of argue in favor of electoral politics, right? Because, yeah. but it's also even, for direct action. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, yeah. that's the bigger part. Oh, of actually. course. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but right. I mean, that's, that's the thing is like, 
I would, I oftentimes feel exactly like you do and would like to opt out of caring or thinking about any of these people and any of the stuff that happens here at all. Um, but when you look at these union fights, which I think we all agree, like a re-energized labor movement is one of the greatest, best hopes we could have for an actual multiracial working class politics here or anywhere else around the world. Um, that is really reliant on having a policy and a regulatory framework in place that is even slightly friendly to it. Right. So right now, even if these Starbucks workers, they had the LR NLRB decisions go in their favor, even if they win the right to a union, the majority of shops that unionize a year later still don't have a contract because that's the next ta next tactic that companies ultimately use to delay and to stonewall. They'll pretend that they're engaged in these negotiations while they're really engaging in bad faith. You have to have a law in place that says, no, we're going to force a binding arbitration if you're unable to come to an agreement. The PRO Act, of course, would do that. But so you have that hurdle to get to. I mean, you have, there was a Dollar General store in Missouri that voted to unionize. Well, Dollar General just shut it down. Just closed it. Right. Closed the shop altogether. And because our laws are so toothless, ultimately companies are able to get away with that stuff all the time. So um, I'm interested in knowing, though, Katie, like what do you track the source of your electoral politics despair to? Is it Was it like the way Bernie was screwed and the way that he was unable to succeed? Is it you mentioned climate and I oftentimes yeah. feel despondent about that as well? Just sort of um, narrate for me your despair, if sure. you will. Yeah, I mean, it was a lot of it was Bernie. Obviously, I was very pro Bernie, and um, his his fate was very, you know, his, the treatment of Sanders was obviously very depressing. Um, I think also I'm just a little bit like copped out, so to speak. Uh, this watching the COP26 uh, and how ridiculously uh, pathetic it was how toothless it was, how it came out with a non-binding resolution that was actually less aggressive than the one that they went in with, um, that they committed to before the negotiations. Uh, I think that is a very depressing thing. But I also feel like maybe we should cut. You guys, your editor should just take me out because it's so depressing how I opened. Uh, you should do like a before and after. This could be something that like Kyle, Kyle, you could start, you could become a life coach or something. <laughs> uh, you and Crystal could go into the life coaching business. Jordan Peterson, feel, look out. Yeah, seriously, we need a, we need a Jordan Peterson of the left. But um, I think you're right that, you know, there is no option, but you can't just give into despair. I was more speaking among friends. I forgot that this is actually a public podcast, so I probably <laughs> switched it a little bit. But um yeah, I think the climate change stuff, again, I'm just, I don't understand if people just really do, does, does Biden just not care about his grandkids? Like, do people just not care about future generations? Is it a, is it a form of denial? Is it delusion? Is it just too painful to look at? Is it, maybe they just don't care about their kids. I don't know. Maybe we have a bunch of sociopaths running the country. That's certainly a possibility, running the world. So, um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to cut you off, Katie. All of the above. Yeah, yeah. You, I actually wanted to think about that for a second and just, like, randomly spray ideas out of my mouth in response to that. Um, As opposed to me with my very, very decisive, <laughs> structured, prepared remarks. No, because it's a good question. It's actually one I've never contemplated before. What uh, accounts for the colossal gap between the younger generations, which sort of see the writing on the wall and are 
generally to one extent or another politically uniform in understanding, at least diagnosing the problems correctly, you know what I mean, and mm. wanting to solve those. Whereas, yeah, the older generations, boomer and up, it's like, they, I don't know. Well, first of all, they have all the wealth. Yeah. We, we know that, that, like, you know, the numbers are astounding on that front. Like, the boomers are hoarding all the wealth. And even, like, Gen X has a lot less, and then forget it, millennials and Gen Z, you know, we have nothing. Right. <laughs> so... Maybe it's that. Maybe it's. Uh, I do gen genuinely believe that there was a stricter adherence among the older generations to a form of authoritarianism in the sense that you're taught to respect authority and that authority is almost inherently good if it's through, through the proper channels. You know, proper channels being like your teacher and then your boss and your country's president. And so there's like more of an adherence to that sort of stuff. But yeah, it is actually a very depressing reality when you think about how disconnected from the real problems older generations are by the numbers. Yeah, and I don't know what, it, I would have to think more about what accounts for that Me generational too. gap. Me I mean, too. the obvious thing to say, which is, you know, kind of grim. Recession? Great is, recession? no, just Life? the fact that Death? they're not going to be affected by it as yeah. much as the younger generation I is. I, that. Mean, I don't know if it's that. I don't know that it's that either. That's the most obvious explanation. But in terms of getting people to take climate change seriously writ large, I think it's a very hard problem to get people to have urgency around. Oh, just my gosh. Because yes. of the way that human beings are wired. There's not one villain here. Frog in the boiling water to is what point we are. To. It yeah. is frog in the boiling water. And then, you know, but other countries kind of have done a better job of taking right. climate change seriously. And I would say part of why people in this country are not able to do that is because their day-to-day -day life is so difficult they don't have time or brain space to apply to a problem that's coming 5, 10, 15 years down the road when it's like, I want to take my kid to the doctor today right. and I can't. I want to be able to keep the lights on and I'm struggling and right. I'm working I want to get 20 jobs. gallons of milk. Yeah, I want to get 50 gallons of milk for my family. And the price yeah. is gone. Nice CNN right. reference. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think you're right that, that there's, yes, climate change I mean, we do have disasters, right? So it's not just frog in boiling water. It's also like the frog in torrential downpour, um, frogs in many natural disasters, flooding. Like in Egypt, there now there were like huge scorpions called like death stalkers or something. We talked about it on our Isn't That Terrible on Useful Idiots this week. But I think that also as someone who has my own podcast and YouTube show, like if I want to do a show about climate, the, the numbers are so low in terms of people tuning in. Mm. It's really depressing. And I get it because it's not sexy. And, you know, the other thing is, like, the media is so good at the horse race politics and making, uh, like, pitting people against each other and Dems and Republicans and creating controversy where sometimes there isn't any and making bad guys and boogeymen. And then for some reason, where it actually matters, like with climate, they refuse to make the politics like about anything combative, which it totally is. It's literally like yeah. the 1% against the world. Why not make that the bad news? I mean, you love the bad, you love bad news. Why aren't you being fatalistic about that? Well, there's a couple I mean, we things, know why, because, because right. And there's a couple things to say to that. Sponsor their show, you know, I'm, exactly. And that, that gets to part of why people here don't take it as seriously as some other places is because of money. So yeah. you have politicians and this gets back to, you know, some of the comments earlier about 
how there's the sense like, oh, we can't figure it out. No, it's so hard and we can't possibly yeah. do anything about present conditions. When it's like, no, actually, we know what to do. We know right. the tools. We know the steps to take. But politicians really uh, use that confusion and that, oh, gosh, it's just too hard. Yeah. as a way to cloak themselves from having any sort of responsibility to actually do something. And right. what is their interest in making sure we don't move the ball forward that much? I mean, that's obvious. It's money, right? It's right. money that runs so much of our politics and determines ultimately what is politically possible. Right. Yeah, I think that's true. And um, it is funny that, I mean, it, it, it's so depressing. And it's it's funny in some ways to watch, I mean, you guys covered this the other day with Stephanie Rule. Uh, it's funny when they just let the 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 mask fall, uh, and yeah. you see how incredibly uh, ideological and uh, you know they pretend that they're calling balls and strikes, but they actually are incredibly interested in a certain outcome in the game. I don't, I I don't even know if I know sports enough to make that metaphor. I think it worked, but they're it not did. impartial. Okay. There, there was a there was a home run from Katie mm -hmm. Albert, <laughs> but they're not impartial viewers, right? They have a stake in this, right. and they shape the narrative. And I do think like the media is one of the most um, the biggest obstacles for progress. I really do. And I think that another thing that happened is that there was some, um, you know, do we have a term on the left for um, Trump derangement syndrome? Should we call it like post-Trump syndrome or something? Because that is real, and we see it, and it's also been uh, very detrimental to the left. Because what do people, you mean by that? That, that? Well, people's brains broke, I think, a bit with Trump. Um, Bill Maher became, is the best example. Yeah, I mean, he was never great, but but I mean, he got way. He went from Bernie in 2016 to Klobuchar in the Democratic primary in 2020, and the right. whole explanation is that he was so scared of Trump. He's like, right, exactly. What's the safest candidate? Yeah, yeah. I was, Which, I was there that, for that. My that, face that, had a lot to say about oh, that. Oh yeah, True. that was a great moment. <laughs> Crystal's like, <laughs> like smiling. Yeah, you were you were trying to laugh instead of cry. I think at his comments. Yeah, but I I think that like. Uh, there were people whose brains broke who didn't understand how to deal with the world. They were a little out of touch. They were a little like whether or not they considered themselves Clinton fans. They had, a, I feel like, a similar response to reality. They were uh, as the Clintons did. Although what's interesting is Bill Clinton knew that it was not going to go down the way that Hillary wanted it to. There's this. Uh, it may be apocryphal, but it's. I think it was in the Daily Mail. Apparently, like they, we do know that he was kind of edged out of the campaign by right. Robbie Mook. And apparently, I love this image of him having a fight with someone over his cell phone, basically being like, hey, can you talk to the white working class, please? And being ignored. And then he, like, threw his cell phone off of his, like, little rock balcony. Uh, or so goes the lore. But, um, yeah, I just think that uh, people, then they got Russiagated and they got, they start, they became these kind of, like, Republican national security hawks. Um Everything was about Trump. Everything was about Russiagate. And there was even this really scary reactionary strain where it was like literally whatever Trump did, people started defending the opposite of it, right. or promoting the opposite of it. And I got to say, like the way politics works is that bad people will sometimes be on the right side of something for the wrong reasons. We saw that, for instance, with TPP. I mean, right. people love to try to smear Bernie for being 
anti-TPP because that made him like Trump. It's like it also made him like uh, Doctors Without Borders, the Sierra Club. Yeah. Like <laughs> now all these all these organizations, I mean, the elites were for TPP. And again, I think that people um, really their brains kind of shut down. And the focus on Russia, I mean, we talked about this a lot, uh, Crystal, you and I. But the focus on Russia was a gift to uh to Trump in many ways. And of course, Matt Taibbi is one of the biggest people in this area looking at Russiagate, debunking it. But watching people uh, put so much energy into this when uh, there were actual, and you, Crystal, made this point, that you can make the argument that he was, you, you made some harm arguments. I don't remember verbatim, but you were you were you gave examples of things that people actually could be focusing on that would have galvanized people, that would have reached people who didn't already hate Trump. This, if anything, made people who like Trump uh, dig in their heels. I mean, we were just the media was just fulfilling this this prophecy that Trump put out there about being persecuted by the media. And of course, he was both enabled by the media, which gave him tons of free coverage. But then uh, he was vilified for the wrong things. I mean, this is a guy you didn't really need to work hard to vilify. Aaron Mate has pointed out that um, you saw he, he says that a lot of the energy that we saw in the people going to the airports, like to stop the Muslim ban, that happened, and then a lot of that energy went into the Russiagate stuff. So the opposition and the resistance really became focused on the wrong thing. Yeah. So with Russiagate, it gave it gave Democrats an excuse to yes. not do anything or commit to any particular agenda. So yep. that is why they went down that path. In some ways, it's it's kind of like when the right in like. 1970s 1980s went so hardcore in favor of like christian fundamentalism where they would talk non-stop about like abortion issues and stuff like that and the yeah. whole point was they felt like look rovers weight isn't going anywhere what if we just like virtue signal all day about how right. we're against abortion nothing gets done but now we've signaled that we're oh we're you know we're concerned about the same things you're concerned about uh, Republican right. base. And with Russiagate, that all came back to if we just talk about Russia nonstop and say Trump is Vladimir Putin's puppet, then you're giving right. people that deranged anti-Trump sentiment and fulfilling that base need for them without actually delivering on an agenda of universal health care, free college or higher right. wages or unionization or ending wars or anything like that. So but that but the scary thought is this. What if it's like that? In perpetuity. What if, like, wh whenever yeah. it's a Republican, it's some culture war bullshit, they, they get people right. fired up over? What if it's when it's a Democrat, it's always some cockamamie culture war bullshit, too? And some, right. I mean, Russiagate, it, in some yeah. ways, is a culture it war is, thing. Yeah, I know. I never thought of it that way. But it is a culture war thing. It's like a wedge issue thing. Um, it's, again, I'm always wondering uh, about people's motives, whether or not this comes from actual brain worms. Like, does Hillary Clinton actually think that she wanted to see the phone logs between Putin and Trump from January 6th? Yeah. From 1-6? Like, is that something she... I, I actually... I really literally don't know. I don't I'm either. Always, yeah, I don't either. Yeah. I mean, people do a lot of pathologizing of Donald Trump, but there, we also need to look into this liberal brain too, this blue check or actually like national security or actual like presidential politics. I am curious what makes these people think. And I would love to do a brain scan of them while they're saying stuff like this to see which part of their brain is activated. Like, are they lying? Are they fooling themselves? Do they need to? I mean, we do know from that book Shattered uh, that was not written by like leftist or right wing uh, journalists, right? Uh, we do know that they decided, the Clinton people decided over pizza, I believe, uh, in Brooklyn the night that she lost, they decided they were going to blame everything on Russia. 
And so another benefit of blaming everything on Russia, of course, is that you don't have to do any of the introspection that would be required and demanded of people who lost an election to Donald Trump. Right. So That's, it's also a way to keep anecdote the anecdote. Oh, yeah, yeah. Repeats that they're going to yeah. yeah. everything it's on Russia. Yeah, yeah. So it's in that book, Shattered. So uh, it's also a great boon for the, uh, you know, con consultant class, which, of course, uh, can't take responsibility for anything. And, you know, I think that there's also the, the obviously there was racism for lots of people. Obviously, this country has a race. I mean, the country is racist and sexist. Um, but attributing everything to racism is actually incredibly dangerous and irresponsible because if you actually care about the most marginalized people, if you actually care about the people at the receiving end of racism, you want to do the things that will not get Trump's into office, right? And if you just attribute everything to racism and you ignore the fact that there were uh, Obama voters who went to Trump, you're Millions actually, yeah, you're, you're, you're actually just creating conditions in which another Trump will arise. And another thing that drives me crazy, we talked about this with David uh, Sirota a bit uh, on Useful Idiots, is that, oh, and on the Katie Halper show, I talked about him, with him. Uh, the this mocking uh, economic anxiety, which again, like I'm just going to put this out there. As a Jew, I never really struggled with the idea that Nazis were bad, Nazism was bad. I lost family members in that in the Holocaust, and at the same time, like economic crises and instability and perceived instability all contributed to making society, that country, many countries. Uh, that much more uh, susceptible to yeah. the rise of Nazism. Treaty so I of think Versailles, that, Katie. That's what, I mean, that's, Hitler wouldn't have happened oh, without Treaty the Treaty of Versailles. Versailles. Yeah, Treaty right. of Versailles, right. So you have, like, and, and it's, again, most, I mean, there is some historiographical debate about that, but I, I think that it's, like, the functional versus um, intentional thesis, and that guy, Goldhagen, uh, at Harvard. But most people are... When, when asked about that or impressed on that, will acknowledge that things like the Treaty of Versailles, stagflation, the wheelbarrows, all that, uh, which not to be confused with inflation, it's stagnation and inflation at the right. same time, yeah. lest anyone try to accuse, you know, uh, people putting money uh, into the economy with Nazis, um, <laughs> uh, accuse them of being that. But um, it is, I think... Uh, that's another dangerous thing. And if you care about the multiracial working class, because again, very, I mean, that is a big myth that the working class is somehow white. It's actually just revealing your own racism and how out of touch you are if you yeah. say that. Or that but everyone it, who says working class really what they, they mean, mean is just right. white. No, people. yeah, no, that's just on you. You're just projecting, lady or sir or whoever the person is saying that. Um, but that's another really uh, dangerous thing. And if you think that, like, you know, another thing is the whole class-race dichotomy, the Bernie bro narrative, as if caring about economic justice is at odds with caring about racial justice. And, of course, all you're doing if you say that is you're acknowledging you have no idea about how racism works. Yeah, so there's so much there that's that's really interesting to me and stuff that I've, I've thought about quite a bit. So on the, the economic anxiety point, this to me was like the peak of deranged discourse yeah. among liberals and leftists because everybody's talking directly over everybody else's head. Right. And so when you talk about it, because the general question is, well, what motivates Trump supporters? Is it bigotry or is it, you know, economic anxiety or whatever? Mm -hmm. And the answer to that question very simply is 
it's all of the above. And yeah. so are there some voters like did Richard Spencer vote for Donald Trump because he has economic anxiety? No, he is. Right. His ideology comes before any material concerns. And so he was dedicated, you know, to, to a bigoted agenda, if you will. David Duke, same thing. Like there are plenty of people who voted for him. Yes, because he said the Mexicans, they're criminals, right. they're rapists. Let's I assume some of them keep yeah, the Muslim, right. you know, yeah. keep the Muslims out, the Muslim. Like there's some people who voted for him because of that. But then there's this whole other group of people who voted for him because he signaled on outsourcing that I want to keep your job here right. and I'm not with the elites. And, and But the, the question to me, ultimately, what people missed about that conversation, it, real all, it really all came down to, could, could you, if you proposed a good economic agenda, could you have chipped away just enough to defeat Trump in an election? Right. And the answer is, well, obviously you could do that. Because like you said, there were millions of Obama to Trump voters. Those are not people... Who you know are, are they're welcoming of? If you say I'm going to make your better life better economically, they'll hear that message out. But that right. wasn't what was on the table really when it came to Hillary Clinton. And and as you know, after the election, then you had you know people like Mehdi Hassan, who in some ways I like him, but in other ways I really don't. Uh, he would he would like mock Medi, the idea of economic curious. anxiety. Well, yeah. I mean, to that point, even on the immigration piece, what's the argument there? And this is a flawed argument, but what the argument is. These people are coming in, they're taking your jobs. They're right. taking your job, they're making your life harder, they're depressing your wages. So that's both a racial argument and, and an economic, an economic right. argument. Yeah, you're tapping into that, yeah. So existence. you have yeah. people who are, you know, total opposite ends. Of the, you have people who are just economic voters about right. TPP or right. something yep. like that. You have people who are just like Richard Spencer. David Duke, yeah. Really responding yeah. to the white grievance Wait, politics. Wait, did you say David Duke or India Walton? Sorry, because I confused those Oh, two. right. I know. They're basically <laughs> Sorry, the same, so I yeah. totally get that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and then you have people who are complicated, as we all are, and they may respond to that message about immigration and also in their lives not be like right. just horrible, irredeemably racist people yeah. all the time right. who might yeah. be open to a left economic message if it's not like totally slathered with, you know, sneering contempt because right. of them even considering voting a, a different way. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think people sometimes don't want to admit this, but like it is you have to explain why people who are coming into this country like. It is not the fault. I mean, Bernie does this, right? And this is why when people c compare Bernie and Trump as the same, it's like they're literally, they are, th have, they both tap into genuine anger and hurt and they go in the exact opposite directions, which is the important part. Hillary didn't even tap into that. So no one was who was feeling frustrated would go towards her, right? right I mean, yeah. if they felt unheard, let's say. Um, uh, and what you had Trump doing was like, OK, you're hurting. I get it. Vote uh, vote for me and let's blame uh, Mexicans and Muslims and I'll protect you from them. Bernie was like, don't blame, you know, uh, Latino brothers and sisters. It's uh, corporations and, you know, healthcare, whatever, greed. Like th those two things are incredibly different. Yep. And the fact that people kind of conflated those, it's like, no, literally you are taking you're speaking to an overlapping population and you're telling them diametrically different things. And that's actually makes you competitive and makes something good. The fact, I mean, Bernie, what people would often be like, well, look, they're potential Bernie or Trump voters. So obviously Bernie's bad. It's like, no, that's what you want, especially because Bernie was not this narrative about throwing people under the bus. Like 
if you ever ask someone, okay, which policies of Sanders are throwing people under the bus, like throwing women, uh, women of color, people of color, the LGBTQ uh, community, which of his policies are throwing him under, uh, throwing them under the bus, or which of Hillary or Biden's policies are right. impairing these people, wh which Bernie opposes, and no one would ever come back with anything. Yeah, yeah, and you know what? This whole conversation, the whole conversation about economic anxiety. You know what it reminds me of, and and I'm, you'll remember this too, Katie, because you know you were thinking about this stuff and active on this stuff at the time. It reminds me of it's the mirror image of the debate about jihadists, because everybody on the left said about jihadists that it's it's not it's it's U.S. foreign policy that's driving them to do this. It's terrible material yes. conditions. It's not just the ideology of like oh they're just evil right. like that's ridiculous. Right. And so then you saw like Mehdi Hassan made that argument. He made that argument. That of is like, a really yes. That, and then that he is a, flipped it for the Trump voters, and for the Trump voters, it's it's all ideological and has yes. nothing to do with the material conditions. Well, and and it, to, yes. to add on top of that, because something I've been thinking about is like you can also hold in your head the the two thoughts that like people are Different. culpable yeah. for their actions, they have agency, they have yeah. responsibility if they're doing bad things out in the world yeah. or they're jihadists or whatever. It doesn't let them off the hook. But when and you there have, are structural things that there are also more people who do that. Structural societal things that yes. are going to lead to more people making those terrible yeah, choices. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. And so it all collapses down to like, oh, well, you're just like excusing white supremacy. Oh, you're catering yeah. to Listen. racism, catering to racism, and also, but that's a very important thing. And I, I've I've thought about this before, Kyle, which you already said that that I did, but. How the left, the same left that will often understand that, you know, people who have committed crimes and they should, because this is something that we understand, right? Like yeah. th that people don't exist in a vacuum and that these societal and structural things contribute or like police, like l abolitionists get this right. Like things are, uh, uh, you know, having more police in many ways will create more crime. It's not uh a, a person who commits crimes is often victimized as a younger person, a person who uh, abuses their kids, right? Like, they understand this when it comes to issues of, like you said, like terrorism, and they understand it when it comes to crime, and that's why they're often critical of the carceral state. But somehow this stuff doesn't apply to class. Right. And that's just a dangerous, that's dangerous, that's inconsistent. I think that's exactly it. Like, we understand how these things are exacerbated and we don't that doesn't mean you're condoning it like and i think the example of terrorism is perfect cuz no one's like condoning terrorists no one's condoning people who uh you know engage in suicide bombing by the way the first people to do that were the um tamil tigers so lest you think i'm being islamophobic by bringing up suicide bombers i'm not <laughs> i'm being uh and they were like basically uh secular marxists so i don't want to make them look bad either just being uh, <laughs> being real here but um i think that's very a really important thing to say which is that again i mean i'm not i'm not sugarcoating nazis either i'm saying that these things had an effect on the population which made it that much easier for hitler's rise to power yeah and you're yeah. right it's not controversial when people talk about it in those terms in those contexts right because yeah. It's, yeah it's a different kind it was a long time ago and so people are able to look at it analytically that way but i mean the the common thread here is why has that narrative been pushed? I mean, the wake of Virginia and New Jersey, what was the narrative that was pushed? Oh, these racists in Virginia, they yeah, just right. bought into the white that, grievance you, politics. You don't have to well, change you your message at all. Then you, you don't just have blame to them. Yeah. Look at Terry yeah. McAuliffe and say, 
what the hell well, were you doing? And like, that, what yeah. kind of a campaign did you run? Hey, why I can't Democrats? The Tony Morrison thing didn't work. Right, can't exactly. Or like Democrats in Washington, why don't you actually deliver on an agenda for once? And maybe right. then people will have something to vote for. And they for. have something to run no, on. Yeah. You can just say, oh, voters are bad and racist. So what can and we do? And that's, right. by the way, that is every Obama speech post being president. His, his speeches are, look, they're bad people out there, and they're energized to vote, so you good people need to get out there in high numbers to defeat the bad people. That's yeah. the way he talks about it. And if you don't, speech. it's your fault. And if you don't, it's, it's, it's on you. Fault. It's not on right. us, it's, it's on you, on so you got to get out there and do it. Yeah, he, it's you similarly, guys. Similarly, he was very happy to blame young people for not pushing politicians for enough climate change uh, response, which And then if amazing. you do that, he calls you a purity tester. And says, yeah, don't let do the that, perfect be the enemy of the good. Tester. Yeah, exactly. And he also will let you, if you're at Standing Rock, what did he do during Standing Rock? I mean, I think a woman lost her arm at Standing Rock. No, I know. Uh, under Obama. That was when Obama was president. Ferguson was when Obama was president. So this idea is like, really? Because a lot of people pushed pretty hard when you were president. And yeah. I what were his comments on that? Because I didn't climate. see His comments on what? On the climate change and young people. He said, hold on, I can find that. Hold on. Um. He said, basically, he was like, you guys need to push. Hard. He was like, don't lose faith and don't turn your back on politics. He was like the Kyle. It was like the he typical, yeah. like, don't boo vote no, stuff. Don't don't turn your back on politics. And um, he was saying, um, keep fighting, Obama urges young climate activists. But he actually said something even worse. I have it right here. Um, sorry about this. I don't, uh, one second. He talked about pressure. Yeah, he did. He said you have to. Put pressure, apply pressure to the politicians, make them do it type stuff. And it's like, yeah, we tried that with like, you, and you yelled at us and said, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Exactly. And you're and a purity he, tester. Yeah. Yeah. He said, the success of movements shouldn't be diminished, even if, if some of the outcomes have fallen short, um, which is a big, uh, I mean, thank you for being so openly uh, critical of COP. I would agree. The outcomes fell incredibly short. Right. But then he says, uh, the question is, where are the countries that really met our expectations? And it turns out those are the places where there was pressure, where there was political mobilization, where there were activists. Uh, it's all going to depend on, depend on you guys to apply it. Wow. Really? Because they applied it under your presidency, and I don't think we saw any results. He Maybe bragged, it's not on them. He bragged about uh, being making the U.S. the number one exporter of oil and gas. He's right. About yeah. the oil boom, he said, that was me. You could thank me for that. So then to turn around and do—I mean, it's just brazenly two-faced, and that's a, just a perfect embodiment of the modern Democratic Party. Yeah. Well, and for Obama specifically, and this is something that our friend Irmi Ose from Pong talks about, his interest now in preserving his legacy is to convince people why you can't do a lot more than why you what can't, he did. Right. It's an anti-Bernie right? thing. It's yeah, an anti-Bernie yeah. thing. If you go with him, he'll make my legacy look terrible. Right. So you can't go with him because that's pie in the sky. He's got he's to yeah. persuade people that we yeah. got everything we possibly could have gotten right, under the exactly. Obama years. And yeah. that if you were disappointed, that was actually kind of on you. Right. That's like on your you. expectations yeah. you were way yeah. out of whack. And, you know, the the moderate incremental changes that I delivered, that was the absolute most that anyone possibly could have gotten. And so you should be grateful and you should vote for Democrats every election, no matter every what. Yeah. And uh, that's that's his interest, because, yeah, if you have someone who comes in and actually gets single payer health care done, how does right. that make him look? Then you go back and you're like, well, maybe you could have done a little bit better yeah, than this like, like private health insurance giveaway yeah. crap that you right. did. It makes him look like the moderate that he actually is. Yeah. I mean, he said famously, I remember because I, I had the clip run on my show a thousand times. 
Uh, he said, if I was a couple decades back, I'd be considered a moderate Republican. And yeah. it's like, damn sure. right. Thank you for that moment of honesty. Really appreciate that. True. Yeah. Yeah. He, I mean, he blamed, <laughs> I like the way he blamed uh, uh, Rahm Emanuel for wanting him to murder people through drones, which I believe. But of course, Obama, you were the president. Right, you had yeah. the power. You were a kind of powerful person at that point in your life. I'm not sure if you realize that. Of course he does. <laughs> But uh, and he was like, you know, I, Rahm Emanuel knew as a liberal, I couldn't afford to look soft on that. And he was like, he didn't even regret killing those kids. He was kind of like, eh, I didn't really want to do it, but I had to do it. Killing so Katie, like young men. And yeah, if you're not super focused on electoral politics right now, what is your where are your interests? What is, you know, capturing your attention right now? What yeah. are things that might be giving you hope in the conversation right now. Young people around climate change. Um, but I mean, it's not that I'm not focused on that, I guess I should say. It's that I just am so dis constantly disappointed. Uh, I think some of the things that I am focused on more uh, is farm policy issues, looking at um, uh, farm policy, because I think that can be often neglected by the media. For sure. Um, also, media criticism. I have a lot of fun with that. Again, you got to laugh instead of cry. Um, I think that Ilan Omar does, you know, uh, some important stuff. Yes. I had Ro, Ro Khanna on my show. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's hard also to... Bernie was, this, I mean, I'm just going to reveal this. Everyone knows this about me. But I don't, I also don't hate Bernie. Some people have, have since the, since the, Biden's election have like really turned on Bernie, call him a sheepdog. Um, I don't. I just think that it's uh, the way he was treated. I do think he he conceded way too early. That was a mistake. Um, I think he probably also needs to be more aggressive. Like, why don't they just threaten to go after Manchin's daughter? That's what I've been I calling for for months. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like he did that tweet that kind of flirted with that. But he needs to just like take that, make her a host, like a political hostage. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean look, that's all on Biden. That in particular, because when you're the president, you could throw around yeah. your weight like that. But yeah, I, I right. think what you point to is actually important because certainly we've both had criticisms of Bernie, but there's right. an instinct to um, take a criticism over strategy or tactics or those sorts of things and make it insanely personal well, this is this is the and, left's fatal yes. flaw in yeah my and get to yeah. this like go to instantly to this place of like oh this person did something that i strategically or tactically disagree with therefore they must be nefarious corrupt yeah. like all of their past actions should be right. reinterpreted yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. in light reinterpreted. of this yeah exactly. of this thing I that agree. they did that i d i don't like and so, I mean, I certainly, and I know Kyle doesn't, I know you don't either, pull any punches where elected leaders or anyone else is concerned. But this constant desire to, to create a, a sort of nefarious caricature of people yeah. and go right to the core and dismiss them as evil and bad altogether right. is bizarre. And it's also antithetical to the way the left is supposed yeah. to view things in like a more nuance, not this yeah, just sort exactly. of jingo with this one's good and this one's bad is such a yeah, simplistic. Yeah. Yeah. And very right wing type of is, way yeah. of viewing politics. Yeah, and also we see that, I mean, with AOC, like there, she is worthy of criticism. She should be pushed, she should be criticized. But when it's a totally personalized attack, that just creates people, that creates like a bunker mentality, if anything. I think right. people become more defensive of her. 
Um, I also think that there's this really frustrating thing on the left now, which is that uh, you're either a grifter, an Assadist grifter on the one <laughs> hand, or on the other hand, you're a neoliberal shill. Right. And there are neoliberal shills out there, but there are also people who aren't, who get called neoliberal shills um, just because they may have a different idea about something. And that's incredibly frustrating as well. Yeah. Uh, and there is, you know, there is a McCarthyite tendency amongst many media sources, uh, including people who consider themselves part of the left, and that does need to be condemned. But there also is are examples of people being totally dismissed uh, because of their takes, dismissed as, you know, bad journalists, bad actors. And I think that, you know, there are lines. There are lines in the sand that have to be drawn. I just think a lot of people aren't drawing them in the right place. That's right. And, and I feel like, to, the, to your point about, like, how there's... Some been some people who just like wholly dismiss Bernie Sanders now, yeah, because of some strategic disagreements or a handful of substantive disagreements. Yeah, the reason for that is to build the narrative, which is largely a true narrative, but it's not a hundred percent true. It's like eighty-five percent true. The narrative of they're all bad, like the politicians are all bad. Yeah, and I'm so above the fray, and I'm so genius that I'm the only honest one enough to point it to point it out, and that's selling a particular brand of political nihilism. Which is actually very destructive, because yeah, if, yeah. if you convince people that they're all bad and none of this matters, then they actually feel more morally pure and more morally justified in sitting on your ass and doing nothing and even lobbing bombs at people who are still in the fight right. and trying to yeah. do the right thing. So that's very, very destructive. And the other problem with the left, I mean, the infighting is obviously the biggest problem, but I also think among the activist left, there, there's, a, there's not a belief in order and discipline and leadership among the activists left. We almost believe in democracy to a fault to an extent because when you do direct action, I've always contended it has to be super specific on specific issues. So, yeah. you know, when you go back to the George Floyd protests that happened, you know, the big banner at the time was like, beef on the police. It's like, okay, what if we did it on much more specific grounds and not something that pulls at fucking 18% and is never going to get the, the, the country on your side? And I feel like that's a broader problem with the left. You don't see, like, remember the women's march? That's more of a liberal thing than a left thing, but, like, yeah. the women's march is like, we're against Trump and we're wearing pussy hats. It's like, okay, and then what? Like, what do you, yeah. what do you, what do you want? What do you want, Medicare for all? No, you don't want Medicare for None of you even know what right. fucking Medicare for right. all is. So what are we <laughs> doing here? It's yeah. got to be, if you're going to, be on the activist left, there needs to be a bigger belief in a direct mission on specific issues and having order and structure and hierarchy and intelligence and strategy, but we don't have that. We're just a mess and we're always fighting with each other. Well, and I would submit that, um, I mean, there are plenty of people who are genuinely in the struggle, have specific goals, are trying right. to strategize about how best to accomplish those goals, but a lot of the voices online, they're really not that interested in actually getting th things done, Right. They're more interested in being, you always say this, like edgy, you know, yeah. and being as sort of flame throwing. There's, it's almost looked down upon. And we get smeared, I think, for trying to think about language and messaging and issues that would actually appeal to people and try to create right. a broader coalition. Because then you get back into that, like, oh, well, you're just trying to placate white supremacists or overlook right. racism or whatever. When it's like, well, no, actually, you know, we just actually want to be able to win and do some stuff and not just be yeah. over here in a corner fighting with one another because what good does that ultimately do? Yeah, and I think there's also this, like, a couple of other dynamics at play, which is that one, and again, there's a lot of back and forth, and 
uh, in one direction this and the other direction that, which sounds a little mealy mouth, but I actually think it's true. You have on some, on the one hand, there's kind of like organizer shaming this kind of like, which actually could mean two things. And, and both, and both things happen. There's like organizers who I think just dis, have disdain for people who aren't experienced organizers or doing the pavement pounding right. uh, yeah. work. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, people have different lanes. Like some people are podcasters or some people have YouTube shows or some people um, have uh, work in messaging or some people work in arts. Uh, some people work in the labor movement. Some people work on climate stuff. And then you have the other other thing, which is like uh, um, the shaming in the other direction, like the as if like organizing doesn't matter or anyone doing organizing or engaging in the system is a sellout. And of course, both of those positions are, I would say, uh, counterproductive. Yeah, it's none of it solid. The thing is, the left, the whole concept of the left is built on solidarity. Yeah. Yeah. And and as soon as you start actively acting like solidarity is a negative thing, we're done here. Right. There's no, there's no right. victories anywhere on the horizon as far as the eye can see, if that's the case. Yeah. 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 And MLK was like, if, I think, to paraphrase, said, if you're comfortable in your coalition, then it's not big enough. Mm. Mm. I like I that. I never heard that before, but that, yeah. that's no. brilliant. By the way, Katie, to something you said earlier, you talked about how, you know, when I do a climate change focused thing, it doesn't do as well as other things that are like, you know, based on conflict. And I honestly, yeah. I find the same thing. There was a time where I felt like that wasn't the case. And yeah. I don't know if I was actually correct in that assumption or not. But I mean, I, I told you this last night. So yeah. uh, two of the stories that I covered on my most recent show. Uh, corporations caught jacking prices and blaming inflation when it wasn't the fault of inflation. They're just jacking prices. Right. And then another one is um, the U.S. hit 100,000 overdose deaths in one year due to fentanyl. And as I was prepping these stories, yeah. I looked at Crystal and I said, I'm not, these aren't going to get, first of all, they're going to be demonetized instantly. Right. Second of all, I'm going to get not nearly as many views on this. Right. And But I feel like I'm obligated to do it. It's yeah, the right course, thing to right. do. It's important. But, you know, there is something that is sort of, uh, extra sad about that because I do have faith in lefties to to put the things that matter front and center. But right. then sometimes the evidence of that sort of cuts in the other direction when it comes to the direct stuff I cover. Yeah, you yeah. know, I was thinking about this actually also, Katie, when you were talking about the climate stuff because I'll tell you the the climate segments that we have done between rising and breaking points that have done extremely well are the ones that were about that Michael Moore, I can't remember the name of it, that documentary that Planet he Planet of the Humans. Yes, right. Planet of the Humans, yeah. which turned to, you know, it's became conflict story. very right. controversial, yeah. and there's this fight. Left on left. Right, it's this left on left thing, and there's yeah. personalities involved, including right. Michael Moore, who's a gigantic personality. Right. And so we a lot of people tuned in to watch that, which is also very instructive about, I mean, listen, I think this is partly how human beings are wired. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. They think in terms of story and people and personalities. And drama. Yeah. And drama. And so the climate change story can be very hard to tell in that same sort of like, right. you know, narrative driven way. Um, and certainly the media hasn't done a good job of helping people to understand right. it that way. Right. But- the, the closest you get to it, you know, after um, there were those horrible floods in Germany. Remember that this happened yeah, yeah, recently. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that coverage actually did get a lot of views on our channel because the pe- images were crazy. The images were so yeah. crazy and people were so stunned by it. Yeah. And there actually was a little a period there where it was like, 
we were being hit with one thing after that happened. Right, there yeah, were, yeah, there yeah. Droughts and horrific wildfires, and it was just yeah. like one thing after another. And I do think that it led to, at least what we saw anecdotally, was increased interest in just like, what the hell is going Temporary, on? Temporary, though. But Temporary. then the other side of yeah. it is, I think it's very depressing for people it because is they feel yeah. like it's intractable. And right. so it's like, yeah, I get it. It's bad. But like, I'm going to watch this segment. I'm just going to feel bad afterwards. Right. I'm not going to feel like there's right. a solution or any hope here. This is and on people, us, though, I feel like. We yeah, have to figure is, out yeah, how to walk to, the line properly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. We can't, and it also, we can't shame people either, right? Like, yeah. as much as I'm like, come on, guys, watch this fucking stream. How could you not watch this? And all I have to do is, like, put Keith Overman calling someone a whore in, and then you watch, you know, he called um, uh, Wyatt Reed uh, a whore for a dictator um, over a tweet that he did calling out the New York Times' Nicaragua coverage, but um, which we talked about on the last uh, stream on the Katie Apple show. But uh, I think that that also reminds me of uh, the way that people would kind of uh, leader shame uh, fans of Bernie Sanders. And again, we've seen like there was not really a well-organized post-Bernie movement or vision. Um, he did achieve a lot of things. He still does achieve a lot of things. I still think he's probably the best, um, most progressive elected uh, person in Congress or the Senate. Yeah. Um, but uh there was a similar thing where it's like, oh, don't don't have a messiah complex. Like, don't focus on the leader. It's about the movement. It's like, you're, what are you going to reinvent the wheel? Like, we don't have time to reinvent the wheel. Like, that's great. But people vote around personalities and there's still movement building to do and organizing to do, of course. But like, you can't shame people for liking a, a politician because especially because not everyone's going to be an organizer or get out there and a movement uh, builder. But I do think um, I think a helpful way to do it is just you, you want to make sure that there's a and it, and again, going back to the media's uh, terrible coverage of this, like they love making these disastrous bad news stories about the about the weather, about climate. But imagine if they actually did that and then pointed the finger back to the people responsible, like right. whether that's yeah. Chevron. I mean, it is unbelievable the amount of kind of like what would you call it? Um, weather baiting that they do about mm -hmm. these these stories that are indeed disastrous and are have these stunning images, and yet they totally abdicate any and all responsibility they have where they could really have an impact. Like, imagine if people understood why these things are happening, understood the role of uh, climate change, of human, you know, human behavior, of, uh, you know, uh, oil companies, of drilling. Um, that would be actually a very teachable moment. But of course, the media won't do that because they're, you know, sp have uh, Chevron sponsoring them. That's you know, exactly like, right. That's, so, of course, they're not going to bite the, the, the oily hand that feeds them. But we should probably talk about Donziger, right? Crystal, yeah. should we yeah. make an exciting announcement? We should talk about Donziger. So, um, great segue, too, because the story has been wildly ignored by the media. Yeah. They didn't even notice the way that he was being, um, you know, the the corporate prosecution, uh, wildly unfair. This man, you know, on house arrest for what more than two years, more going two, on yeah. three years before he ultimately was sentenced to federal prison, which is insane, insane. insane. Yeah. And listen, for I for defending, I, uh, for representing indigenous Ecuadorians exactly. poisoned by Chevron, for right. beating so Chevron, right? For people, yeah. for people who haven't followed this story, and we had Donziger on this podcast, we've had him on Breaking Points. You know, I've tried to do monologues about. It. Yeah. I know you have been, been on all too, yeah. 
all over this, Katie, but for people just to get the little like nugget of what this is yeah. about, he won a very successful lawsuit in defense of indigenous Ecuadorians whose land and health was destroyed by Chevron. He wins this multi-billion dollar settlement, which they have yet to pay a single dime of. And they made it their mission to destroy this man. And they all but admitted it in documents that were, you know, revealed during the discovery process. And so after years of trying to get him on something and hit and finding judges that were tied into the fossil fuel industry and extraordinarily friendly um, and a, a sort of unprecedented prosecution where the the local pro- the prosecutors in Manhattan yeah. said we're not going to take it up. Yeah, the they Southern hire, District of New York refused to do it. Yeah. Refused to do it. They hire a prosecutor again. Law firm has ties to Chevron, Chevron. and the fossil fuel industry. They finally get him on contempt of court, which, first of all, I think the charge is bullshit to start with. Right. Um, this was a sort of normal discovery dispute, and he was trying to protect his attorney-client privilege. Yeah, not hand over his cell phone and laptop. But let's say, let's say that For he really sake, was yeah. guilty of contempt of court. No lawyer has served a single day in prison for this charge. It's the lowest level misdemeanor you can possibly have. And he served, he was on home confinement for years and now is serving a six-month sentence in federal prison while his teenage son grows up and he's away from his family. His life has been ruined. He's been disbarred. You know, the the legal fees he's had to pay, all of these things, it's completely insane. So yeah. you've really led the charge in trying to help us think through what we could possibly do to continue to bring attention and awareness to his plight because he's an extraordinarily effective spokesperson for yeah. himself, but he's in prison now. Yeah. So he can't prison, do yeah. the media appearances with us, us and others that he had been doing. Um, so tell people what uh, you and me and Marianne Williamson, Brianna Joy Gray have kind of cooked up. Yeah, we are coming together. So as Crystal said, Crystal, Marianne Williamson, Brianna Joy Gray and I are going to be hosting a live stream, a special Donziger live stream on December 8th. Um, the evening of December 8th. And we're so excited. We're going to, it'll be a chance to talk about the case, raise awareness about the case. We're going to be doing some letter writing and phone calls, but it'll be fun. Don't worry. We'll make it amusing and, and entertaining and, and humorous because you got to actually, I, I mean, I've had Steven Donziger on a bunch of times and I would be like, well, thanks for coming on the show. Not that you had anywhere to go really because he was under house arrest. So he never lost his sense of humor. Um, but uh, we're going to make sure that it's fun. And it's going to have amazing participants. So we already have committed Roger Waters, who you may have heard of, yes. of Pink Floyd uh, fame, Colorful but also character. an amazing, amazing, um, in his own right, just a, a really amazing political thinker, incredibly informed, um, really smart. Uh, and also Lucy Lawless, Xena. Xena is going to join, be joining The warrior us. princess. The warrior princess, yes. <laughs> and um, we have represented some Amnesty International and uh, indigenous organizations, and it's going to be a great stream. Um, and it's going to be, we're all going to be in the same place at the same time. It's a historic moment, right? Yeah. Crystal, Bree, me, That's Marianne. 
Has that happened before? It's a I real sausage so. fest, I, I must say. Yeah, a real sausage before. Yeah. I'm a, yeah, that's gonna be yeah, fun. Yeah, we haven't been. Yeah. Um, and Kyle says he's gonna send in a video. He's got. He's busy doing a show and stuff that day. Traveling too. Yeah, traveling, yeah. doing a show. Assuming so I have us. a functional leg at the time, which we'll oh see. yeah, yeah. But he's gonna I'm participate. Gonna he's gonna another ball at his leg. Send in an exclusive video that you can only see on our. Donziger live stream, but um, yeah. no, I mean, like I said, you've really led the charge oh. um, in making sure that, you know, we're all doing something and, and doing what we can. We're going to try to raise some money for his legal defense fund yeah. and get people to make calls to keep the pressure on the DOJ. Because again, I mean, back to your despair with the Biden administration, Biden administration can end this anytime, yep, Merrick Garland. You could end this tomorrow. Yeah. And, and yet, they have nothing to say about it. They have nothing to say. And they literally, I mean, and also it's interesting to look at, The Intercept has done great reporting on this, the relationship between Chevron and Jerry Nadler, because Jerry Nadler um, and um, Gillibrand uh, represent Stephen Donziger's district. And both of them have major uh, connections to the fossil fuel industry. And uh, they should be actually, I mean, God, again, like, if Trump, if this happened under Trump, people would be justifiably, totally justifiably Apple up in it. arms about it, yes. right? It yes. is a corporate prosecution. It's a persecution and a corporate prosecution. The guy is a political prisoner. And Chevron basically has is making him, uh, they don't want the precedent of anyone being able to sue them for their criminality. Uh, so they're putting everything into this. I mean, also, this, you know, the... Somehow, I don't know. I don't understand the technicalities, but uh, taxpayer taxpaying dollars are paying for this. Have paid for the prosecution um, because I guess it's on behalf of. I don't really know how it works, but uh, we're going to also have a lawyer for for Stephen on the show so he can explain all of those things. But um, it is again, it is like an unprecedented corporate prosecution where again the the Southern District of New York, the actual prosecutor's office, refused to. Uh, prosecute him and a judge in a very um, atypical move uh, hired appointed a private firm which had represented Chevron to uh, prosecute Donziger and then when he was held in contempt uh, the judge in a very unprecedented manner handpicked the judge who would oversee and determine the uh, verdict on the uh, contempt and that is a woman named Loretta Prescott who is a Federalist Society judge. So Ugh. we know them. They're incredibly right-wing, reactionary, also funded, big donor uh, to the Federalist feelings. Society is Chevron. Mm -hmm. And she was so open in her, talk about contempt, in her contempt of Donziger. Oh. And it was, a, it was, she actually said, it seems that only the proverbial two by four between the eyes will instill in him, like, <sighs> respect for the court. I mean, stuff that you shouldn't say out loud. Like, keep that to yourself and your evil, like, the evil cabal of judges, I imagine, like sitting around with cigars and like laughing at all the people's lives that they've ruined. But uh, yeah, it's really stunning the impunity and how um, the the gall of Chevron. And it makes sense, though. It's not an irrational decision because look at what they're being able to get away with. Yeah, that is absolutely right. And of course, the media did not even notice. Uh. This no. was happening and, until, no. he was yeah, until he was already in, and then in it was prison, like two minutes. In prison, all of a sudden, yeah. they they know that. Yeah, I think one segment. Jake Tapper yeah. did one Tapper segment. Tapper did something on it. I think the New York Times finally covered it, but they have lawyers representing, uh, like they have people at the New York Times who have total conflicts of interest and mm. represent and ties to Chevron. Um, and so, yeah, and and yeah, everyone's been silent. And again, this is kind of like 
he's very different from Assange. He really is different from Assange. Uh, but what is what is somewhat comparable is that, you know, all it would take for Biden to distinguish himself from Trump. Right. This again, these are Trump. Biden is being Trumpian in his treatment of Assange. Biden is siding with Donald Trump and Mike Pompeo over Barack Obama. Barack Obama decided not to pursue Julian Assange because, among many other reasons, the New York Times problem, right, which is that if you're going to go after Assange for publishing these documents, then you're also going to be implicitly saying that the New York Times and The Guardian and Der Spiegel and the País have blood on their hands because they publish these things too, right? Right. And by the way, again, like if the if our justice system had any even like even if they wanted to cosplay as a justice system, they would have dropped this case because we also know that the main the star witness in this case against Assange, the star witness when it comes to the hacking charges, which again, liberals brains are so broken, they all think that this is about 2016, the charges have nothing to do with 2016. But the charges, uh, the star witness is a convicted embezzler, sex offender, uh, who has been diagnosed as a sociopath who admitted that he lied. Right. Like, w this is Trumpian. Like, this level, well, it's Bi Bidenian, again, and Merrick Garlandian, apparently. <laughs> but all they have to do is side with Obama. I thought you guys were the responsible rule of law, re constitution respecting people, not these thugs that... Um, that us that Pompeo and Trump are, but apparently you are Trumpian. Yeah. And with the Merrick Garland and, and with the Stephen Donziger thing, it's the opposite. Like in, they need to just take that case back from the corporate prosecution. Um, and the fact that again, Trump, if you saw Trump doing this, people would be up in arms as they should be as because should it is be. disgusting. Yeah. Yeah, no, that is absolutely right. Um, Katie, thank you so much for joining thank us. You. Thank you for drawing attention to those issues on your show, The Katie Halper Show, and also on the Useful Idiots podcast. Tell people where they can find you and all your things. Yeah, so let's see. You, uh, well, Katie Halper, I'm on Twitter at KT Helps. That's letter K, letter T, H-A-L-P-S. Uh, you can uh, catch my show. I've had on people like uh, Noam Chomsky, um, Rania Kalik, uh, ranging uh, AOC, Glenn Greenwald, and you can catch that um, at uh, uh, where we find well iTunes and SoundCloud, okay. and then the Patreon only, which I have great bonus exclusive episodes. Uh, that's at Patreon.com/slash/TheKatieHelperShow. Again, that's Patreon.com/slash/TheKatieHelperShow. I have some recent great episodes with Max Blumenthal and Aaron Mate, um, Brianna Joy Gray, also uh, Rokana. I had a really interesting, I made like I edited together a virtual debate kind of between Rokana and Aaron Mate, who were I not in the that. same place at the yeah. same time, but about the sanctions in, uh, against Nicaragua. Uh, and uh, for, you can also find that live. I stream live, youtube.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's youtube.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Make sure you subscribe. Uh, you hit subscribe and then the, the bell, like, share. And uh, for useful idiots, you can go to uh, usefulidiots.subtech.com and also get great bonus episodes and catch us on Monday mornings, uh, youtube.com slash useful idiots, where we do this Monday morning segment, which is okay. spelled M-O-R-U-N-I-N-G-S. Uh, <laughs> and we go over the Sunday morning news shows. Oh, I like that. that, yeah, that I, yeah. I didn't know you were doing that. I got to yeah. check that out. Yeah. Um, one yeah, of these fun, days, yeah. I'm going to get Kyle turned on to uh, Noam Chomsky. I think you'd really like him yeah. once, once you learn more yeah. about him. But I think he'll, yeah. I think he'll be into yeah. that. So maybe we'll introduce him to that via your show. Katie, yes. thank you so much. We love thank you. you. Great so to much. see you. Love you guys. Bye. 
All right, so that was Katie Halper, and um, yeah, it's interesting because the thing that she seemed very like self conscious about bringing up actually sparked a phenomenal conversation. Yeah, she was really apologetic about like oh, I was too much of a duper at the beginning or whatever, but I actually thought that was all. It's always refreshing when people are just super honest about where they yeah. are, and I think there's a lot of people that feel the way that she does. So it was helpful to go through like. Why do you feel that way? And is that the, you know, is it helpful to feel that way? And what are the things that are energizing you? And what does it stem from? Personally, I found it very useful. So if you catch me on my bad days, I can make the most convincing case on the planet for doomerism. Mm-hmm. But if you catch me on my good days, I can make the uh, convincing case against doomerism. Yeah. And that's the thing is that like everybody who cares at all about what's going on in the world and trying to fix it, everybody's going to have those days. Of course. Because the hurdles seem so insurmountable. But in a weird way, it's like, Doomerism, while on the one hand it feels like completely rational, it's actually like deeply irrational if you think about it. Because we don't have the luxury. You know what I mean? We don't have the luxury of saying like, meh, what are we going to do? Right. It's not like you can just tune it out and it's not going to impact your life or bleed onto things that you really care about. But I can definitely understand why. The combination of, I mean, the news about Out of D.C. has been so depressing. Every week they're, like, shooting in the head another wildly popular and important provision in the Biden agenda. And then you layer on top of that, she was clearly taking a lot of the um, climate change coverage from the COP summit. And that's also extraordinarily depressing. I think that is the thing that sends me over the edge, too, is when you really look at the the numbers and the data and the science around where we are with climate change and what we need to do and then how little is being done, how even if we had gotten the three and a half trillion dollar plan, it was like still wildly insufficient. That's when it's hard to pull yourself back from being like, why are we even bothering? For me, it's the gulf between the polls that show what people want and what we actually get accomplished. That's the thing that always like, like $15 minimum wage, everybody wants it, but it's like, what's it called? The parliamentarian said the thing about the thing, and what am I going to do? Right. Or, I mean, even there are even more popular and less controversial provisions like paid family leave or negotiating prescription drug prices that are like 90% of the country wants this and we still can't get it done. That is deeply depressing because you're like, it doesn't matter what the public wants because the process is so corrupted that Ultimately, it is irrelevant that 80 or 90% of people want this thing. I'm going to make a weird analogy now. Okay. But in moments like this, you got to think of like Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, Tiger Woods. Because when the going gets tough for the greats, they view that as even more of an opportunity to prove themselves and to get and to get the win. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I grant, I get it. Like it's sports. Sports is totally different. It's it's. I mean, it's inconsequential compared to the issues we're talking about. Yeah. But I guess the upside of it is that if you put in the effort in even a slightly intelligent way, you actually will get paid off. And that's exactly what we saw with the John Deere strike is that they were like, well, what if we actually did a strike? And what if we actually stood in solidarity? And what if we actually didn't take any shit? And then they did it. And it was like, oh, you won. What? I didn't know that winning was an option. It's like, no, it is an option, but you have to be intelligent, strategic, aggressive, all the above, and relentless. Because people, when they fall down, they don't like to get back up. And especially if you fall down two or three times, you don't want to get back up. But, you know, that's the virtuous thing is that when you're on your 18th time and you still get back up, that's real. That's the real test of character. Well, and people are so clearly searching for a different direction. Like, that's 
politically why you have these swings between this party and that party. Right, because nobody party, does shit party. for people. Right, because people so clearly the old model is done and dead and exposed and rotten and hollow and broken and people are done with it and they keep trying to let's do something different let's try something new let's have a different vision for the country and they keep cycling through let's try something different something different something different maybe one of those iterations you'll end up with something that is actually good yeah no i mean i said it a million times but all you need is sort of like a trump of the left if you will kind of sneaks under the radars, treated as a joke, wins. And it's just like, I'm freeing all the nonviolent drug offenders. So yeah, it just starts, you know. I'm using the, yeah. I mean, right now, if you had that person, you could actually have Medicare for all. Not that I believe it would get through the legislative process, but there's very clear David Dayan and others laid yep. down mm-hmm. the executive power in during Provision a pandemic. Provision in Obamacare, you could During a pandemic it. that would have allowed them to expand Medicare to everyone if they wanted. You know, I mean, there's a lot that you could do if you just had the vision and the balls to do it. And one more point. In 1960, if you went to Mississippi and told somebody, segregation is going. They'd be like, what? Yeah. What does that I'm even sure mean? Like, that's just the way it is. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah. But then, you know, eventually that fight was won because of relentless pressure and, uh, you know, bodies in the street and a moral vision and guidance and leadership and focus and relentlessness. And it's always impossible until it's done, you know? So, and, and I mean, the upside is can't get any worse. So you're you're at rock bottom. It's like we can only go up from here. Yeah, I mean, you think about the gay marriage fight. Like when I ran for Congress in 2010, I was considered courageous for being outspoken in my support of gay marriage. That was not that long ago, you know. Right, and now and, it's the dub position. But at that point, Obama wasn't in support of right. gay marriage. Hillary Clinton wasn't in support of gay <laughs> marriage. Joe Biden hadn't come out in support of gay marriage. So. Things can change quickly, but yeah, you've got to have the right conditions. You got to have, and I think you. And now it's the dub position. With yeah, K-Marriage. now it's the dub position. Yeah, that's why it gets to a broader theory. I have. We don't need to get into this now, but the general idea behind it is that oftentimes on social issues, we get a lot more movement on those first because mm-hmm. the corporations and the status quo are so resistant to any economic change that they throw you the bones on the social issues. Yes. you know what I mean. And so yeah. we will have legal marijuana before. We have Medicare for all. That's a guarantee. Yeah, gay yeah. people will be allowed to get married before they're allowed to all have health care. Right. That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> Which is exactly what happens. Small so. victories. Yes, indeed. Um, anyway, I thought that conversation was really interesting, and I enjoyed it very much. Um, I thought it was interesting, too. Uh, Katie Halper is wonderful. And, guys, if you like the show, if you support us, consider going to Substack, paying $5 a month, and getting the videos of the show a day early. If not, no big deal. We still love you. And you could get the audio version of the podcast for free a day later. Uh, And a big thank you to everybody who does pay the $5 and uh, is supporting us on Substack and checking it out. We we love you guys. We appreciate you big time. Have a good one, and we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Have a good one, guys. Uh